About seven years ago, Vicki and I were backpacking in Yosemite. And as part of our trip, we decided to hike up Half Dome. Now, if you've ever hiked Half Dome, you know it's like no joke. And the higher you get, before you get to the summit of Half Dome, you come to what's called Subdome. And as you're getting closer to Subdome, you've got all these switchbacks that you're doing. And obviously, the higher up you get, the more you're just realizing the only thing that's holding me to this mountain is gravity. And there's nothing, there are no handrails. I mean, it's just straight down. So it's disorienting. So when we get to Subdome, Vicky decides, you know what, I'm good. I am good right here. I do not need to go up there. To get from subdome to half dome, there's just sheer granite rock with iron cables that you've got to hang on to. Some people actually clip their harnesses in to go up. So she's like, I'm good. And I'm like, it's right there. It's right there. We can do this. So we may have had a slight conflict in that moment. Long story short, we make the decision, I'm going to quickly summit, I'm going to come back down, we're out of there. So I do that. While I'm on the, the summit of Half Dome, something's happening down with Vicky. Courage is starting to rise in Vicky's heart. And there's a number of hikers that she's talking to, and all of a sudden she starts to figure, you know what, I might want to do this. Now, one of the people that encouraged her was the ranger, the summit ranger that came up that was about to go up the, the pinnacle. And he said, if you go, I'll go. So Vicki said, all right, that's it. That's what I needed. I got somebody in a uniform. He's right here behind me. And so they go up. Now, as they're going up, uh, Vicki starts to have a moment with Jesus. I can't believe this. Like, you're at, I'm, I'm so scared, but it's exhilarating at the same time. And I'm going up. I'm facing my fears. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And she starts to give voice to this moment with Jesus. God is amazing. Look at these mountains. Like, this is the iconic Yosemite Valley view with all of the mountain ranges in view. God is amazing. This is so beautiful. She's giving voice. And then she turns to the ranger and says, don't you believe in God? Isn't God amazing? Do you believe in God? To which he said, no. I look at this, and I just see evolutionary science. I see rocks and trees and things that nature has just over billions and billions of years created. Like, I have no reason to believe in a creator God. Two people looking at the same thing and coming to two totally different conclusions. That's what we find at the end of John 11. Look at your Bibles. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. The same people saw the same thing, heard about the same event, and they came to two totally different conclusions. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, Jesus, did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That's supposed to be like the dun-dun-dun moment, okay? The comparison. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Father, we pause now, and we pray that you would give us eyes that see. We pray that you would give us ears that hear. And we pray that you would give us hearts that believe your eternal truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've got to be honest with you here. I want something different at the end of John 11. I want the bonus episode of the podcast with Lazarus. I want to hear from the guy who actually just experienced being dead and then coming back to life. Like, can we get Lazarus taking us? So far, we have not heard a peep, not one word from Lazarus, and we won't. So I want the bonus episode. Lazarus, what was that like? Did you know that you were dead for four days? Or was it more like you were sleeping and then you woke up from like a long nap? Or Lazarus, what was it like to hear your, your friend Jesus call your name and wake up, and you're in a tomb with all these dead bodies. Did that freak you out? Lazarus, like, you were all wrapped up. Like, was it hard? Like, how did you get out of the tomb? Were you, like, hopping? That must have been difficult. Lazarus, why don't you tell us about that? I've got all these questions. John doesn't care about any of my questions because he goes right to the response of these people. Why doesn't John care about my questions? Because he, care, he cares more about my faith. John is writing about Lazarus not to entertain you. John is writing about Lazarus to get you and me to believe in Jesus. And so he's asking us a question here. Is my writing having its intended effect? And what he does is he gives us two categories of people. Do you identify more with them, with them or with them? Do you identify more with this group or with that group? That's what John is doing here. What follows the miracle of Lazarus is Mary. We're going to get to Mary next week. And Mary shows incredible love to Jesus. Like extreme devotion, like extravagant devotion to Jesus. Devotion that she actually gets criticized for. That's not what we find here. Here we see people who hate Jesus 
and decide to kill him. So this is what I believe John is trying to teach us. Jesus brings about a divided response. You either love him or you hate him. Jesus brings about a divided response. You either love him or hate him. There's no kind of believing in Jesus. Kind of believing in Jesus is like kind of being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And John is forcing us to deal with this issue. He's inviting us into belief in Christ. And he's asking, do you either love him or do you hate him? Now, most of us, I think, the reason we're here is that we put ourselves in the love Jesus category, right? Like, we wouldn't be here. Or minimally, we're here because we're interested. Like, I know enough about Jesus that I'm intrigued to learn more. I'm here because I'm trying to figure out who is he and what does it actually mean to even follow him. So we're here, I think, because we would put ourselves in the category of those who are inclined, if not full on, all in on Jesus. Here's the danger for us. We approach these types of passages, and if we're not careful, we say something like this. Get a load of these guys. I mean, Jesus raises a guy. He's now walking around. The dude's been dead for four days. Now he's walking around town, and this is the way he responds? These guys are idiots. Get a load of these guys. If we respond that way, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. All good teachers and writers do this, right? They, they teach us when they're trying to get us to learn something and to understand a concept, they teach by contrast. It's not this, it's this. It's not this, it's this. That's what John is doing here. And over and over again in this gospel, he's trying to teach us what is true faith. What does it really mean to love Jesus? What does it really mean to believe in him? And so here, what we're going to learn is that John is giving us two more aspects of true faith, genuine faith. What does it mean? What does it look like? John's giving us two more aspects of genuine faith. We see the value of faith and the verdict of faith. The value and the verdict of faith. First, the value. True faith Genuine faith, loving Jesus, believing in Jesus, the kind of faith that gets us eternal life, that faith, true faith, values truth above personal power and prestige. True faith, genuine faith, really believing, loving Jesus, values truth, the truth of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ, we value that truth above personal power and prestige. That's not what we see here. Here we see a group of men who love their personal power. They love their personal prestige. They love the influence, the authority, their power, their position, their status, their cliche, they, they, their cachet. They love all that comes with their role above Jesus. We see this most clearly in verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place 
and our nation. Now that might sound real pious and noble, but it's not. Caiaphas, the leader in all this, says later on, it's better for you. It's better for us. It's better for our position of power. It's better for our prestige that we get rid of Jesus and get back to business as usual. That's what they valued. They valued political and religious power and prestige. Now, to be fair, this was like a live issue, right? This is an exaggeration. With each miracle that Jesus did, larger and larger crowds were gathering to him. Rome doesn't like large crowds. Rome does not like uprisings. Rome does not like disorder. And when they come to deal with that, guess who they're coming for? These guys. These guys, who's gathered here is called the Sanhedrin. They're made up of Pharisees, Sadducees. Those are the Jewish leaders, the priests, the scribes, the lawyers. And a lot of other people, like influential landowners and business owners. These are the movers and shakers in Jerusalem. These are the guys with clout. These are the guys with, with influence. Okay, so when it appears, and by the way, Rome has delegated all authority to them. So the Sanhedrin has all authority over the Jews in matters of politics and religion. So when it appears as if Jewish politics and Jewish religion are out of order, guess who they're coming for? These dudes. So this is real. They, they, they feel something here legitimately. So they've got to do something about this Jesus. They're not eager to give up their power. So they've got to do something about Jesus. Now again, before we get too critical of these guys, where's the Pharisee in me? Where's the Pharisee in you? A long time ago, I don't know why these types of things stick with me, but they do. A long time ago, my friends and I watched this movie about a college football team. And the movie starts out with the training camp, and there's one particular player, like this is his senior year. So he's doing everything. Like he's on the juice, he's taking steroids, he's in the weight room every single day, and he is ripping guys' heads off at practice. Like he is going for it. And then after training camp is over, it's the typical scene, right? Coach posts the starting roster in the locker room. So you got all these big, burly football players, like, pushing and shoving and trying to get to see if their name's on the roster. And this dude comes in from the locker room, and he's, like, shoving guys all out of the way, like, total roid raging, gets to the sheet, and, like, is looking for his name, and he finds it. Let's go! He starts raging, and then he says this. Finally! A place at the table. Interesting. A place at the table. I finally made it. I finally got a place at the table. I finally am good enough. I'm finally recognized. I'm finally one of the starters. I finally belong somewhere. Finally, a place at the table. Where is your place at the table? School is starting back up again. Bummer, right? 
Endless summer, I wish it never would stop, I get it. But school's coming. And we all know, whether we're in high school or any type of school or not right now, we all know that lunchtime is hugely important. And this is literal, right? Like, we want a place at the table, and it's got to be the right table. I want a place at the table with the cool kids. I want a place at the table with the smart kids. I want a place at the table with the popular kids, whatever that means. I want a place at that table. And I'm willing at times to do whatever it takes to get a place at that table. And once I'm there, you better believe I'm doing whatever it takes to stay there. Some of us want a place at the six-figure salary table or the high six-figure salary table. Like, I want to hang with the rich people. I want to be with the wealthy. I want my acceptance to be with this crowd of people. Others judge the people at that table, and they want to be at the table of simple living. Like, I'm the down-to-earth type of person. I'm the kind of salt-of-the-earth type of person. I want to be, my friend group, I want us to be simple living people. I've been rock climbing recently. I love it. I love rock climbing. I'll tell you what, guys. I don't want to sit at the average rock climber table. I don't. I want a seat at the elite rock climber table. But I'm 42, 40, how old am I? Apparently I'm getting old. I'm 42 years old. I'm a husband. I'm a father of five kids. I'm a pastor. And now I'm a dog owner. There ain't no way I'm going to be an elite climber. It's not, that ship has sailed. But you know as well as I do that when you really want something, logic and reason don't get the job done all the time. I want what I want. Some people want a place at the beautiful people table, the skinny table, the healthy table, the people who have it all together table. Some people want a place at the perfect family table. Marriage, look, at least from the outside, my marriage is good, my kids are, none of the kids are going off the rails, they've got the right friends, they're in the right school, everything at least from the outside looks squeaky clean. I want a place at that table. Now all of us are different, all of us, but we can all relate to wanting a place at some table. And when we have it, we will do whatever it takes to keep it. Now, paradoxically, these men, the very thing that they feared is going to happen. In 70 AD, Rome is going to come into Jerusalem and totally destroy the city, rip down the temple, and displace all of these men. So what they actually fear is going to come upon them, which means the very thing that they were clinging to really provided no lasting security to begin with. And the same is true for us. The very things that we want and strive for, the place at the table that we think will give us final security, never really offers that to us in the first place. Now, what if? What if one of the guys in this group were to say, yo, time out. Can we just think about this for a minute? I mean, Lazarus was dead for four days, guys. He's out, he's out shopping in the market now. Like, can we just, 
Can we slow down the murder plot for just a second? Like, is there something to this Jesus guy? You see, for all who would seriously and slowly consider who Jesus is, you would find that he's not a threat. Jesus is not a threat. He's actually the the only one who is able to give to us the very thing that we search for in all of these other places. Rebecca mentioned Heather Holloman. Ladies, you really need to sign up for this conference, October 1st and 2nd. One of the things that Heather brings out in one of her books and the material on being seated with Christ is she compares the difference between Jesus and the Old Testament priests. Do you know what Old Testament priests never did? They never sat down. And there's a reason for that. They couldn't take a break because they constantly had to be on their feet providing sacrifices and atonement so that the people of Israel could stay in a right relationship with God. Jesus is not like that. After Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for sin, what happens? He rises from the dead and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? The work's done. The work of our salvation, the work of our atonement, the work of our being forgiven and coming under the grace of God, all that's necessary, all the work is done. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why Jesus is sitting down. Now, do you know where the Bible ends? The Bible ends at a banquet table. The Bible ends at what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And for all who believe and love Jesus above all other things, the one who believes in Jesus, guess what they have? A place at the table. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So that table has a place setting. And guess whose name's there? Yours. You have a place at the table. And guess what? It's not because of how, wor- how hard you work to get there. And it's definitely not how hard we work to stay there. That place at the table is secured for us because of all that Jesus has done for you and for me. Praise him. We've got a place. We've got a better place at a better table all because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, that's what true faith values. And here's the other thing. Maturity. Okay, so it's not just believing in that. Maturing in that faith leads to confidence. It leads to the type of confidence that allows you to become and constantly becoming assured of who you are in Jesus. Which means that if I'm hanging out with all the people that I once wanted the place at the table with, I'm willing to identify with Jesus even if it means losing credibility with those people. Because what happens is maturity and faith means I don't use my friend group for myself so that they give me the approval that makes me feel good about myself. They don't need me to use them. They need me to love them. 
And so I'm willing to identify with Christ, even if it means ridicule, I'm willing to identify with Christ because way more than they need me to selfishly use them for my own confidence, they, mean, they, mean, they need me to love them, to show them Jesus allows me to be safe, secure, and confident, not in who I am, but because of who he is and what he's done for me. They need me to love them. They don't need me to use them. You see, that's how the gospel sets us free at this place of the table mentality. This is what true faith values. It values Jesus above personal prestige and power. Now, these men viewed Jesus wrongly. They saw him as a, a threat. And where this concludes is very sad. Jesus no longer walked openly with them. That's a very sad verse. They hung, they clung so tightly to what they thought was going to give them lasting security and what they actually did was forfeit the very place where that security came from. John is pleading with us, friends, don't do the same thing. Do not do the same thing. True faith values Jesus and the truth of God revealed in him above personal power and prestige. Faith values truth in Jesus above personal power and prestige. Secondly, John shows us the verdict of faith. We just got done talking about the value. Now John is showing us the verdict of faith, the conclusion, the decision. The verdict of these men, their conclusion, is that Jesus must be a substitute who dies on behalf of the people. Now there's a lot of irony here, and John is super clear about it. Their verdict, their conclusion is, if Jesus lives, we're all going to die. If Jesus dies, we're all going to live. That's the verdict that they come to. And ironically, that is the verdict of faith. It's not what these men understood, though. Here we see the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility playing out at the same time. God is working out his plan from before the world began. And these men are working out a plan that has their political and religious best interest in mind. God is working and God is responsible and men are working. And men are responsible. They're making real decisions, responsible decisions, even evil decisions that somehow, in some way, in God's economy, all work together to accomplish exactly what God wants to happen. How does that work? It's a mystery. I don't know. But that is what the Bible teaches. Look at Acts chapter 4. I think we have this here. Look at what the early church who, come, who comes under persecution, they're together and they're praying in Acts. And this is what they're praying to God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's these guys. So the peoples of Israel, the Sanhedrin, was gathered together. Why? To do whatever your God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
So these men are working, and God is working, and both of them are happening simultaneously. It's a mystery. But that's what's going on right here. And John is calling us to have faith in a God who rules and reigns over all things, even the sinful decisions of these men. It means that God has not lost control of anything that's ever happened throughout all of human history. And it means that God has not lost control of anything that's ever happened in your life. He's not. He's completely sovereign. Now, we constantly need reminders of this, don't we? We constantly need. This is especially hard when life gets messy. When life is going good, I'm all about the sovereignty of God. Praise God how sovereign he is to control all things for my good. But when I'm in a bad spot, the idea of the sovereignty of God is a tricky one. And when life gets hard, it's really tempted to be like these men. These guys were leaders. These guys knew their Bibles. These guys were supposed to see that Jesus was the Christ. Minimally, these guys should have stopped and at least prayed. God is nowhere a part of this picture. He's absent from men who should have known better. The only thing, they didn't want God in this situation. The only thing that they wanted was to rid Jesus from their lives as quickly as possible so that they could get back to business as usual. You see, the verdict of true faith is not, hey, let's kill Jesus Let's get rid of Jesus and get back to business as usual. The verdict of faith is, he died for me so that I could live for him. He died for me so that I could live for him. Do, do any of you have like catch-all rooms, closets, things that you shove everything in before people come over? Okay, good. Your laughter gives you away. I know that we're not the only ones. So typically, if people are coming over, our bedroom, Vicky and I's bedroom, is the catch-all, right? All the things that we don't have a place for, there are things that have gotten messy, laundry that's all over the floor, all of that gets shoved into our bedroom. So if you come over to our house, don't ever ask me for a full tour because you're at least not seeing one room. You're not seeing my bedroom. Sometimes we treat Jesus that way. Jesus, I'm comfortable with you being all in control of all these things over here. But this one area of my heart, you're not coming in here. You can't have access to that room. I'll, I'm okay with you controlling all things in life as it relates to all of this stuff over here. But this one, this one I'm going to hold control on. I don't trust you to control this. I need to control. And I don't want to yield this area of my life to you. Uh-uh. We've got rooms in our heart where we say to the Lord, not this one. I don't like the way you're doing things in this one, so I'm going to maintain control of this. 
I've got to work to my exhaustion at times to maintain control of the way I think life should be. What John is doing here is he's asking us, friends, look at the sovereign plan of God. This is the sovereign plan of God. Jesus is sent into the world to be your substitute. We all know what a substitute is. When I got a substitute teacher, he or she comes in to take the place of the regular teacher. In this case, Jesus is the substitute. He comes into the world. He's sent by the Father into the world. And he substitutes himself for you and for me. He lives the life that none of us could ever live. He's completely perfect in all the ways. He completely obeys the Father. He never once sins. So Jesus the substitute comes into this world to live the lives that we could never live. And then he substitutes himself on the cross. So he says, I will take all of your sin. I will take all of your guilt. I will take all of your obedience and the shame that comes along with that. And I will substitute myself on the cross. And on the cross, I will take all of the just punishment that those sins deserve from God Almighty. I'll take it. I'll suffer the shame, the guilt, the punishment, the wrath for eternity. I'll take that for you. And then I'll be buried and rise again. And then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to substitute all of my righteousness. So all of my perfect obedience, everything I ever did to please the Father, all of my righteousness, I'm going to substitute that for you, and I've removed all of the filth that you, that you created in your life. So I'll substitute my righteousness, and that righteousness is like a robe that I'm going to clothe you in. I've removed all your dirty clothes, and now I've given you the robe of my righteousness, and it's my righteousness that's going to totally secure you in love with the Father forever. There's nothing that can taint that because it's my righteousness. That's the substitutionary atonement and the substitutionary righteousness that Jesus gives to all who believe in him. He's our substitute. That's the way a sovereign God worked in history. That happened. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is in heaven. That happened. But that's not all. That same sovereign God, in the mystery of his providence, so worked out the details of your life and mine that we would come and there would be various circumstances that would bring us to a point where we heard this truth Somebody told us this. We read it. Somebody communicated the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, and we didn't just hear it. We realized, oh, that's for me. God sovereignly worked in my life and in yours to bring us to a point of saving faith because he loves you, and he's brought you to that place to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ that you would believe and have eternal life. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, since I sovereignly worked in your particular life in that way to bring you into an eternal relationship with myself, I'm asking for you to trust me in every single area of your life. Because if I loved you enough to orchestrate history for you, you can trust me right here in all of the ways that I'm working. You can trust me. I'm sovereign over this. It might be hard. It might be difficult. It might be mysterious. You might be hurting. I know I'm with you and I love you. I'm in control. You can trust me. I'm going to work this out for you. 
I'm not abandoning you. Look at how I've worked over here and trust me over here. That's what John 11 is calling for us to do. Some of you are crying right now, and the room just got heavy. I know that some of you are walking through personal crisis and trial. And life is really hard, and if you want to talk about maturity and Christianity, this is it. This is the deep end. Trusting in the goodness and the kindness and the sovereignty of God when you're hurting incredibly, that is the hardest thing in the Christian life. It is. It's way harder than persecution. Trusting in God through trial is the deep end of Christianity. And some of you are swimming and feel like you're drowning. I want to be crystal clear. What I'm about to say right now is not aimed at you. It's not aimed at anybody in particular, but it's certainly not aimed at you, okay? One of the reasons... One, not, not, not the only, one of the reasons why I think these recent times have been so hard for us as a church and in general in a culture is that we have shown that we believe in a very, very small God. As things have not gone our way, as things still are not going our way, we have shown by our words and our actions and our attitudes that our God is very small. We're giving in to worry. We're giving in to anger. We're giving in to fear. And I say we because I mean me too. And here's what happens when we live that way. We have a very small view of the sovereignty of God over all things. We take our eyes off of the clear purpose that God has written for us in the Bible. And it's right here. The purpose of God for this world is this. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus for the salvation, not just of us, but for the nations. So that means that my life is about the gospel, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, not only transforming my life, but transforming my neighbor's life and transforming the lives of everybody on this planet. That's what life is about. That's what your life is about. That's what my life is about. That's what this church is about. And when we take our eyes off of the sovereignty of God for that particular purpose, there's all kinds of ways that we go off the rails. God means to use us, friends. He means to use my life. He means to use your life. He means to use us as a people for this purpose, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to show him to be the beautiful Savior that he is, that people right here and people all over the planet would come to see and know and believe and find life in that Jesus. That's what we are about. And like these men, what these men should have done is what some of us need to keep on doing. We need to repent. 
We need to cultivate an ongoing repentance that keeps God really, really big and keeps God and his purpose for the world clearly before us because brothers and sisters, my family in the faith, that's what we're about. This is what unites us. Our common faith in the substitutionary death of Christ, his resurrection on our behalf so that we would love one another and take him to the nations. That's what we're about. That's what John is calling for. Friends, the, great, the grace of God has transformed us. The gospel has made us a different kind of people. And this is the verdict of faith. He's died for me so that I could live for him. That's what unites us. I love you guys, and I know you love me. That's what unites us, and that's what we're going forward with. He died for me so that I could live for him. John here gives us two aspects of true faith, the value of faith and the verdict of faith. Let me ask the band to return. I want to go back to the story that I began with. The park ranger who got Vicky to the top of Half Dome, you know what his name was? Jason. So that got me thinking. And of course, my ego went to work. What about that Jason was so special? Why does that Jason get to get my wife to the top of Half Dome, but I can't? What about that Jason and his cute little outfit was able to get my wife up to the top of Half Dome, but me and my scrubby backpacking clothes couldn't get the job done? The guy that I should have profusely thanked, I was growing more and more resentful of. Why him and not me? Why him and not me? Now, interestingly, before I became a Christian, what this guy was actually doing was, the, that's where I was headed. I was an environmental science and conservationist. I wanted to be in forestry. I actually applied to a national park in the West, on the West Coast. So his job was like one of the jobs I was aiming for before I started following Jesus. I spent all kinds of time climbing mountains and being outside. And I never once, not once, did I ever stop and think, wow, look at the glory of God. I never once stopped and humbled myself under my creator. Never once. I spent countless hours outdoors living for myself. So then I started thinking, it's not why him and not me. It's why me and not him. Why me and not him? Why do I get to see creation and see, wow, the sovereign God of the universe put that here, and that's the same God who sent Jesus to rescue me. Why me and not him? Friends, the only reason that I can give for that is the grace of God. The only reason why me and not him is because God's grace, his unmerited favor rested upon my life, and he, opened, he turned the lights on. He let me see Jesus. That's why me and not him, and I pray that he would see him. This is the verdict, guys. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we will love him.
because he's so incredibly powerful and loving and gracious and merciful, and he helps us to make sense of everything in life. And when we see him for who he is, we cannot help but love him. Amen? Amen. Amen.